This episode is brought to you by Neon Lights. Singapore's premier music and arts festival is back November 23rd and 24th at Fort Canning Park. And here's why you shouldn't miss it. You can catch Mumford & Sons' first ever performance in Singapore, Halsey in a brand new set, Han, Muramasa, Nick Murphy, Clean Bandit, Aurora, and many more. Interact with the art on display at Neon Nooks, grab a bite from the market, and lace up your dancing shoes for the silent disco, a festival favorite. Grab your tickets now at www.neonlights.sg. Welcome to the Coconuts Podcast, our look at the latest and greatest reporting from our eight newsrooms in Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. I'm Todd Reese, and I'm the managing editor of Coconuts Bangkok. And I'm associate editor Tara Kamaltanavis. Hey everyone, welcome to the Coconuts Podcast. What is going on today, Todd? Oh, the cave movie, the movie about the rescue of the 13 boys and their coach that was the trapped. The wild boars. The wild right? boars were, was officially released. Today, well, today, Thursday, yesterday, listening to this yeah, uh, yeah. Friday, right, it hit theaters here in the kingdom. And on um, Monday, you went to the movie premiere and you actually saw the movie. How was that? Yeah, I did go to the premiere. And uh, look, I mean, I, I, I was very surprised. Well, cool. I'm excited to hear your thoughts after we run through this week's headlines. Eight months after Tanatorn Jungrungrungkit's progressive party rode to third place in an election tilted against them, a court with jurisdiction over political matters disqualified him this week from sitting in Thailand's parliament. Tanatorn, whose political movement enjoys wide support among younger Thais but terrifies the military-backed establishment, was immediately blocked from taking his seat following the March election. And Wednesday's ruling means he'll have to watch from the sidelines after judges said he breached election rules. At issue were shares he owned in a media company, a no-no under election law, that Tanatorn said he sold or gave away prior to becoming a candidate. His arguments that it only printed in-flight magazines for a budget airline and closed its doors a year ago were rejected by the court. Uh, but Tanatorn remains a potent symbol to those hoping for more just and democratic Thailand free of military dominance. Before and after the verdict was read, the 40-year-old billionaire said the fight would go on and his future forward party would continue to pursue its policies. Well, the fact that his political career was killed in the crib shows the anxiety he creates among the establishment, who view his brand of change as a destabilizing force that would undermine the national trinity of monarchy, military, and religion. There's also been some really interesting responses online, like on Twitter after the verdict was read. The top trending hashtags on Thursday was hashtag Tanatan, hashtag Rest in Peace Thailand, and Stand with Tanatan. Yeah, and I think that's where we, we, we draw these, this stuff we talk about the popular with the youth, reporting what's going on social media. You mm -hmm. try to look for the other side, and it's really hard to find because right. it seems like, at least in the Twitterverse... Twitter is very, the, with, very much with Tanatan. Standing with Tanatan, yeah. yeah. The center of nearly six months of pro-democracy protests this week shifted to a Hong Kong University campus where a standoff between hundreds of demonstrators and police started on Sunday. For over four days, police charged at protesters holed up against Polytechnic University again and again, firing tear gas and arresting those involved. Fewer than 100 pro-democracy demonstrators remain at the campus Thursday after hundreds dramatically fled the siege, including by shimmying down ropes from a bridge to waiting motorbikes. Much of the campus has been damaged. The daring escape didn't go without a hitch, however. 
Reports said that at least one protester fell while attempting to climb down to the flyover below, sustaining a serious leg injury. As soon as police discovered the escape, they responded with tear gas, and some protesters fired arrows back in return. Police also arrested many that tried to make a dash for it, sometimes beating people with batons as they held them to the ground or kicking their heads. To explain where things stand now is Coconuts Hong Kong's Stuart White. After days of intense clashes, the standoff between protesters and police in Hong Kong's Poly Yu appears to be a stalemate. Only a few dozen of the hundreds of protesters who held off police at the university are thought to still be holed up inside, and surrendering protesters have continued to trickle out. Others have also tried to make increasingly elaborate escapes. Uh, two protesters were arrested on Wednesday, along with four others accused of helping them, after they were found emerging from a manhole not far from the campus apparently having crawled about half a kilometer through the sewers to get there. 78 years ago next month, Japan launched massive surprised attacks that plunged the Pacific into war. As imperial troops landed in Thailand and destroyed much of the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, bombers struck Singapore to wrest it from British control and place it under the chrysanthemum throne. After a few years of Japanese rule, the tables were turned and Allied bombing campaigns pounded the city-state for the better part of a year. The end results of all this? Lots and lots of bombs all over Southeast Asia, many of which were duds and never exploded. So why the history lesson? Fast forward to Monday when the area around former Zouk nightclub in Singapore had to be evacuated. It turned out that revelers there for years had been pounding their feet just above one of those bombs dropped all those years ago. And this week it finally fulfilled its mission. Residents and hotel guests were ordered out of the area while a military EOD unit used sandbags, trenches, and their own boom powder to destroy the bomb, video of which they gleefully posted online. It was a sight better than five years ago here in Bangkok, where a 500-pound bomb dug up by workers was sold to scrappers only to explode and kill seven of them when they tried to cut it up with a welding torch. Did they not know it was a bomb, or did they, like, tr sold it, and then they... It was a lot of metal. Um. How you? The Indonesian government has a creative new proposal to boost the country's medical tourism industry. Can you take a guess as to what it is? I'm going to not... I'm going to guess it's not great services at low prices. Nope. No. It's a little bit original. It's, it's penis enlargement medicine. Oh, damn. That was my second guess. <laughs> Health Minister Terawan Argus Patranto said his ministry is working to prioritize the development of traditional herbal drinks such as Markiro, Tongkat Ali, and Pua Cheng. Funnily enough, all three medicines that he named claim to enhance sexual performance and even enlarge the user's penis. Well, we, we know what's on the health minister's mind. <laughs> I know, right? To understand what these medicines actually are, we turn to Coconut's own associate editor, Shani, to explain. So Tongkat Ali, Purwa Cheng, and Makero, these are all brands of traditional herbal medicine drink, which is known as Jamu in Indonesia. Jamu uses an array of teas, tonics, pills, creams, and powders, um, either to cure or prevent really every ailment you can imagine. The ingredients are usually pretty cheap, simple, and easily available. Jamu is still consumed regularly by a lot of Indonesians, but specifically for the brands that I mentioned earlier, these are believed to be helpful in enhancing sexual performances. They are really popular, as I mentioned, and in keeping with the times, a lot of them are now packaged and sold online. But of course, most of these don't actually carry any scientific proof that they really work as advertised. And now over to Manila for that classic game of graft or not graft. 
House leadership from the ruling party were defending in florid terms controversial plans to spend 50 million pesos, just shy of a million U.S., on a flaming spire to hold the ceremonial flame for this month's Southeast Asian Games, or Sea Games. A symbol, a work of art, was how the flaming phallic spire was described by House Speaker Alan Peter Cayetano. He insisted that objections to the eye-watering price were in fact short-sighted, after opposition minority leader Franklin Drillon noted that the same money would build 50 classrooms. President Rodrigo Duterte weighed in, as is his wont, to explain that the tower was a, quote, product of the mind. You cannot estimate how much money you lost because it's the rendition of the mind of the creator, Duterte said in comments possibly ascribed to whatever he's taken for that pain. Meanwhile, even some in the athletic community were questioning whether it was worth the cost, with the head of the martial art Karate-Do Federation lashing out at the government for spending more money on the torch than it does supporting athletes. So, graft or not graft, you be the judge. Well, I'm going to say graft, but at risk of getting sued, I'm going to say no graft, so... And them's the news. So, Todd, we were talking at the top about that cave movie and your opinions after seeing it. Actually, I was at the premiere, and I, I probably said, the, the, like, if I wasn't a pedantic asshole, I would, just, uh, I would just respond to people, hey, it was great, right? Because that's what you're supposed to say. But, but I am a pedantic asshole, so I can't, like, I, I wrap myself in this uh, virtue of the truth um, and truth speaking. So what I was telling people is that I was really surprised. Um, in a good way? Yeah, no, in a good way. Not because, I mean, not because I, I just assumed it was going to be bad, bad, bad across the board, but largely because, I mean, you know, I'm really into stories and I'm really into storytelling right. and like how to tell a story and what works and doesn't work when you tell a story. And, and what I always saw the problem for this movie is how do you tell a story about something that goes according to plan and turns out okay and keep it true to the story, right? Which was what, what the director set out to do with this. Yeah. I didn't see how you could structure a rewarding, dramatic story that's not a documentary, keep it close to the truth, and have everything turn out the same way, right? I'm not going to spoil the movie, cause, but because you, you can't spoil the movie. Yeah, it's historical. <laughs> it's Yeah, I mean, look, they all lived, and you go into that from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so it was very interesting to see some of the, the choices that were made and that I won't spoil, right? Okay, so how do they pull this off? How do they make a film about this that managed to be engaging? feel like a drama and keep you watching it without it feeling like it's just sort of like a recitation of facts. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, and then this happened. Yeah. Oh, and then that happened. Um, and I think that they did some pretty clever stuff. I think that they, they, they rose to those challenges and it's a surprisingly good movie. Um, and I didn't expect to be saying that. Okay. Uh, despite, and, and this isn't just like, yes, uh, I appeared in the film way too much. People were saying, oh, like, you did a nice job. It's like, well, that's like telling a bear they're doing a nice job of catching fish. Um, <laughs> You're just being yourself? Being well, I'm not being myself, but I'm being, like, my newsboy character. Yeah. Right? Um, I'm making air quotes as I say this. Uh, if you asked me to do, like, a dramatic role, I, I probably would just fall flat on my face. But if you're asking me to like, okay, go into that, that like, the newsreader personality, yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's uh, was just recreating what I'd done. So... Mm-hmm. I would say overall, the performances were pretty good. The pace was pretty good. Uh, actually, the music's pretty good. My complaint would be that there's just way too much of it. Too much music? 
Yeah, like the music, which is kind of telling you how to feel um, all the time, like very dramatic soaring. And I met the con- I met the composer afterward, and even he, he said that uh, like, yeah, maybe maybe there's some parts that could have been a little less music. But I understood why it was necessary because it would slide into kind of this static documentary feel of mm-hmm. people doing stuff without sound that like the it's kind of necessary to keep it in the you know in its lane as a as a dramatic film rather than confusing people uh and losing its pace and scope um so yeah that that would probably be my 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 biggest criticism would be a bit heavy handed on the music there were some nice and clever moments um there was one that was very subtle that I could see maybe people taking the wrong way, but I, I thought the only right way to handle it. Remember, in the middle of all that, when the whole world was tuned into, like a much larger tragedy of much greater proportion took place down in Phuket. Oh, um, the the shipwreck, the sinking of the, the phoenix. Sinking. Yeah, 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 where like I think fifty or something people died, mostly Chinese tourists. I mean, that was if you if you hold these two things side by side. Uh, that's tragic on a much greater scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but but so that they did reference that in the film in a way that was, uh, I thought, appropriate. Oh, that's um, interesting. I didn't expect that. Yeah, so there were little things like that I noticed throughout it. Uh, at the same time, there is, you can kind of see the politics that go into creating a film mm. from from cultural politics to financial politics, just in the process, right? Um in the film, the authorities are pretty infallible. Um, they're, they're, it gets at some moments to uh, some of the failings of the bureaucracy, but overall, these are all heroic, uniformed. Mm. You know, these are the good people who are taking care of us in society. Um, and so, in Thailand, that does sort of uh, resonate with with some some values there that, sure. that our, any of our, our readers would be familiar with, or in any of our markets that have, you know, lean, uh, skew authoritarian in their governance. <laughs> so, yeah, um, I, I say go see the film. I don't think it's going to be in the theaters very long, and, and yeah, I think I think that people will be surprised by it. Okay. Um, oh, yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so I'm looking forward to this, maybe this weekend. In that vein, since we don't have, uh, we don't have another segment planned for this week, why don't we... Should we rerun the tape of our chat with the director a few weeks yeah, ago? Yeah, let's 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 play our tape when we sat down with the director of the cave, Tom Waller, and just talked about how he made this film, what were his real life inspirations, and just what it was like, you know, putting up a film. And like he he was the first one to put out a movie, a nonfiction movie. Well, it's semi nonfiction, semi fiction about the cave, and like Netflix is gonna release their series soon. So he's kind of ahead of the curve. So we're just gonna talk to him about how that feels. And and what was like cre- putting the movie together? And we got this. We got to episode twenty-four without a rerun. Yeah, this is our first rerun. All right, enjoy this uh, classic look back to uh, the Coconuts podcast uh, best best of moment. I don't know. Didn't Sixteen months after the rescue of the wild boars football team captured the world's attention, the first film to recreate those dramatic events is headed to the screen. The Cave, or Nang Non, relies heavily on direct accounts from behind-the-scenes participants to present some of its untold stories. With us in the studio today is Tom Waller, the film's Irish-Thai writer and director. Tom, welcome to the Coconuts Podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me in the studio. So the teaser just dropped. Tell us what the reaction has been. And I ask this, mindful of the fact that there's some people who 
no matter what the film is, are going to say, ah, uh, look at these people uh, rushing to cash in on this. And, and I, I, that stuff's out there. It's the Internet, right? Yeah, unfortunately, you can't edit the Internet. It's just, you know, it's impossible. Once something's out there, it's difficult. So I think for me, the, the reaction has been uh, mostly positive. I'm, I'm, you know, I was absolutely flattered to see the amount of views. You know, we got like a million views within the first day on, on one of the YouTube sites, on, on the, the major Cineplex YouTube site. Uh, you know, just went crazy with comments. And I could spend all day reading comments about the teaser. Although that won't be doing me any good because probably, a lot of I, them... Yeah, reading comments <laughs> is not... As you tell me every day. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this, is a, this is a newsroom axiom. Don't read the comments. I mean, you have to sort of develop a thick skin as a filmmaker. So it's not the first time that I've had to read comments about my own work. Now, the teaser trailer is just the teaser. It's just to give you an idea of the mood and tone of the film and what you're likely to expect. Right. It doesn't... A lot of the storylines in the film are not in the teaser. It did have... I mean, I, I, was, I was happy to see, you know, the moment that really kicked things off. And, you know, up until that one moment where... Uh, and I, I, the, the, the John Valentin says, thing, how many of you, 13? Exactly. Yeah. That's it. And that's... I mean, that was, that's what flipped the switch on this story from uh, a, a curiosity in a distant land... Right. And, and you sort of assume the worst. And in, in newsrooms, we think, ah, oh, they're dead. Right. I right. thought that all week. And then suddenly, wow. Right. Miraculous. Yeah, it was an amazing moment. And I remember watching it on television and thinking, it's incredible that we have this footage that the foot, you know, that they had a GoPro camera in yeah. there. Yeah. And, you know, what we did in the film was instead of, you know, try to copy that or to make it, you know, uh, you know, to, you know, because that's already iconic. You can watch it on YouTube. Uh, we didn't try to in any way better that. What we did was to give you maybe the other perspective, you know, to see from the point of view of like, you know, well, what are those kids seeing when right. those lights come in? You know, what what are, what are those kids going to do when they hear these far this? Uh, oh, these I remember farms? thinking that. I remember thinking these kids are sitting in this cave in this dark, and then suddenly, right. what? There's some lights, the lights coming, appear, yeah. And, and yeah. these creatures emerge. I mean, they could have thought a lot of things. Right, foreigners <laughs> like all of a sudden pop up. I mean, they come up. You know, they're like aliens arriving right. Right. because they, they right. come up with the lights and everything. So for me, it was very interesting to be able to recreate that scene and, and find a different way of giving you the same. You know, the, the, it's the same dialogue. It's it, you hear the guy saying, you know, how many of you? Thirteen. But basically, it's 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 different. In the film, you'll get that iconic moment in a from a different perspective. So, in fact, we watch a lot of those uh, YouTube trailer reaction videos. You know, the mm. other day, the other night, I was watching one, and some of them are hilarious because <laughs> they play the the teaser and they kind of put their own kind of you know commentary on it. Right. And uh, and for a lot of people, when those words come on, that flips the switch for the viewer. Totally. And they, they, they kind of, they, and they kind of, I see this kind of wry smile on a lot of their faces. Because yeah. I think a lot of them, you know, they, they're used to watching maybe Hollywood, big A-list movies with $200 million budgets. And, you know, Thai films are usually quite small with limited budgets. This one, we had quite a lot of, I had a lot of... Um, you know, production value with this film. We, we spent a long time making it and we, we filmed it over, you know, weeks and months, if you like, because we had to go back and reshoot things. So it's not a flimsy production that you think was put together quickly. It was put together quickly, but we've been very thorough in, in telling the story. Well, you shot how many, how many weeks or days? Well, or, I'll know, talk about it in shooting that. day. So usually a film can vary from anything from, you know, 18 to 55 days shooting. Yeah. We, we shot about... 35 days, but we also okay. shot a lot of what I call uh, pickups and second unit days that, that maybe don't weren't counting as a 
as a proper day, as in we went up to shoot in Chiang Rai. That's where the camp is um, located. We, we tried to make sure that we had enough coverage in the right season as well, because, of course, the color of the grass changes, you know, so we had to go up and shoot the rice fields, you know, uh, quite soon after the event so that they didn't turn yellow. So it's not a lot of green screen, fake cave? No, I mean, there's, there's hardly any uh, digital work in the film. It's, it's, it's all done... Uh, you know, very realistically, we shot multi-camera. We have a we have a very. What was that like shooting? And I mean, I don't. I doubt any of your previous films have taken you underwater. The underwater segments, I think, are the most challenging because you have you're dealing with safety. You're you're dealing with kids in the water. You're dealing with, uh, you know, actors, and you're dealing also with. Uh, the mechanics and the engineering of being able to put a camera underwater and mm. being able to view that image and to see whether it's okay. So yeah, it's 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 very difficult to make a film underwater. You know, we were filming in real caves, so we had to worry about, you know, creepy crawlies and snakes yeah. and spiders that bite and all kinds of nasty things. So, yeah. and I remember this one time we had a, a snake wrangler go in there first to kind of extract <laughs> a snake that was seen in there. Oh, nice. And he kind of came like up a with normal- this. <laughs> this wriggling snake, and I was like, "Well, you know, could, the, could that is that poison?" He said, "It's not poisonous, but it can bite. It could bite. It, <laughs> it could bite." Was that? I mean, is this like Thai movie production? Because I mean, half of our stories are about snakes popping up in weird places. Is this like? Is that a normal Thai movie? You got to send in the snake guy to make sure it's clear. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a snake budget <laughs> just to clear. Snake them. wrangler, yeah. <laughs> um, and audiences should expect to see more of those familiar scenes in the film a lot of the a lot of the iconic scenes uh in the film are taken from you know news footage that we've recreated the scenes you know in the film we have very 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 few shots from from the real thing it's all been recreated as a movie and and that's why it is a fictionalized account of what happened so i gotta ask you know i mean a lot of people want to want to do this film. I mean, it was a huge story. Everyone knows this. I don't have to even explain much about this, because I think at this point, the world knows exactly what we're talking about. Right. Sure. It's, it's been a year, and they <laughs> remember so many things that happened in yeah. this, from the highs and the lows. Entire world was watching. The kids were on Ellen. It's like an international <laughs> sensation by now. So my question is, okay, a lot of people, I'm sure, want to make, film, make, make films about this, want to adapt this, uh, in part because it's a great story, in part, some would say, because of a quick buck. Why did you take on this project? Why did you want to tell this story, Tom? Well, I think like everyone else on the planet, you know, I watched the news and, you know, my heart was beating. Actually, I was in Ireland at the time. Uh, As you said before, my my father's actually Irish and my mother's Thai. And although I was born in Bangkok, I was also educated abroad. So for me, seeing this story unfold through the mass world media, immediately gave me this idea that actually, you know what, maybe I was the right person to make a film about this story. Maybe not the only person to do it, but certainly in a unique position to be able to harness kind of, you know, having had that cultural background of being both Western and Thai. And it happened to be fortuitous that one of the divers involved in the rescue came from Ireland. He actually flew out from County Clare in Ireland to help with the rescue. Warney, correct? Yeah, Jim Warney. He was right. actually Belgian, but uh, he, he lives in Ireland. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I went to see Jim, and, you know, we had a very, very interesting uh, cup of tea, as it were. And I ended up staying for a couple of hours, and he just kind of downloaded everything to me in those two hours that he spoke. 
quite emotional about it, really, because he had been through this this whole ordeal. This and was soon after he got back. This was right after he got yeah. back from Thailand, and you know he had no connection to Thailand at all. So when I discovered that there was this man involved in the rescue, and he was from the county next to where I'm from, you know, mm. my my dad's from Tipperary, and he's from County Clare. I just went around and, and visited him, and we ch we chatted about it for, as I say, a couple of hours, and I was really intrigued by the story that he told me. I think one of the thing that stood out to me the most in researching your movie is the fact that you have real people in your film, that you actually talk to the people who were at the cave. So can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. We have a roll call of people involved in the rescue uh, appearing as themselves in the film. I mm -hmm. mean, not only do we have you know rescue volunteers who... You know, ha who dropped everything to go and help, but we have, you know, several people who were part of Jim's team. Were, you know, part of the re the rescue diving uh, team were also appearing in the film as themselves. We have Miko Patsy from Finland, who actually uh, works. Uh, he has um he is a dive instructor in Kotal, so he also was he appears in the film as himself, playing himself. We have Tan Sao Long, a Chinese uh, cave cave uh, diving instructor mm. who also appears as himself in the film and we have eric brown who was the only north american diver involved in the rescue so all these guys came on board the project to in order to make it authentic in order to tell jim's you know to tell the story and it's sort of through jim's eyes so we kind of see their interactions with jim and how jim met them you know this is the authentic story of what happened mm -hmm. and you know a lot of films they take liberties with the truth and of course, yeah, certain scenes have to be dramatized because you have to take some creative license. But at the end of the day, this is a very realistic uh, depiction of what really happened. So I hear that there are some interesting stories behind Puyai Tan, which is one of the... Yeah, there were some ties involved. What can right. you tell us about, about Puyai Tan? Yeah. We have a character, interesting character, Puyai Tan, who's one of the instrumental people in draining the cave of all that water. I mean, he, he brought in these turbojet pumps mm. to really extract the water in, in much greater quantity so that they could really remove uh, as much water as they could to get to let the British cave divers into the uh, what we call beyond chamber three, which is, which is where the, the forward operating base of the mission was. He, he drained a lot of that water so that they could go in, so it was safe enough for them to go in. And, and, to, and eventually they found the boys, actually, 10 hours after he drained uh, the water, they, they actually found, they discovered the boys that in was, Chamber 9. That was the moment. Yeah. Okay. Why did he do this? He saw those kids on the news. He saw it on TV. And although he's about 1,000 kilometers away from the scene, wow. he basically dropped everything and put his pumps on the truck, whatever he had his left in his, in his factory, and he headed there, and he yeah. drove through the night to get there. And, of course... There's a long story, but cut short, he wasn't allowed in straight away. When he so, got there, they're like, who are you? <laughs> yeah, they're like, you need a badge. You need to have a yeah, permit. You know, right. where are you coming? Sure. They just didn't Well, know. speaking of permits and permission, um, the, you know, the government moved to quickly kind of lock down this story. Um, and, 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 and I think a lot of people appreciated the, the impulse to sort of defend, protect the children from overexposure. Um, you had to go somewhat outside of that. So how did you tell this story uh, without, with, without, without having that access. The film people who wanted to try and, you know, tie up the rights or buy their rights or get this exclusivity on their story, you know, they came like vultures. So, in a way, it was it was important for me not to just be another vulture, but I had to just approach this from a completely different perspective and to say, listen, I'm a Thai filmmaker. I've made Thai films. I have 
somewhat uh, interesting angle on this, which maybe other people are not going to do. Because I don't think the characters in my film will be in any other Hollywood... You know, they're, they're not going to be in the Hollywood version. Puyai Tan is not going to be a character <laughs> in the Hollywood version. For me, to, to approach the story without kind of permission... Uh, was was the first challenge, you know, wh what would I get away with? And that was really what was going through my head was like, well, how far can I take this? You know, am I, when am I going to get shut down? And that was really the thing that went through my mind every day when I got up to go to set was like, are they going to stop us? You know, when we tried to go film at the Cape, is there someone going to say you can't come in? Right. Were you ever able to get into the actual cave and film? Finally, once we do, actually, after we finish principal photography, we actually got a letter from the Ministry of Culture saying that we could go and film at the cave. And this was something that came through like way after we'd finished filming. Yeah. So in a way, <laughs> we had to remount, go back and start all over again and shoot, wow. shoot well, not shoot the whole thing again, but we had to shoot the scenes that were meant to Called be in front of the cave. Right? Yeah, okay. We shot pickups in front of the cave yeah. and we shot all the scenes that we needed, Tom Luong, the real Tom Luong. Right. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't do a Tom Luong film and not have some Tom Luong, so it's good to know that that's in there. And that was That's exactly what I told them. I said to the Ministry yeah. of Culture, I said, listen, <laughs> That would look pretty silly, wouldn't it, when we're right. playing at film festivals, and I have to tell them that, yeah, right. we weren't allowed any access to yeah, the cave. So, releases. well, and it's a bit of a disingenuous. It was a bullshit question because I, I, I think I filmed a scene inside the cave with you. Yeah, that is correct. I wasn't sure whether we were going to own well, up to the no, fact that I mean, you're look, in the in, film. In full disclosure, like the when we wrote that brief last week about the trailer coming out, I. But I worded it very carefully. I put a I put a conflict. In, I said that 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 Todd had filmed scenes for the film. Well, Hoping you're very lucky you're still in the film. Todd, well, no, I was going to say, I, I mean, I wrote it very carefully that way because I assumed some, you got some better judgment hit you and you left me on the editing floor. Well, luckily, your scenes passed with no cuts as well, so uh, <laughs> you, uh, you're absolutely still in the film. I mean, one of the nice things about it was that I had this, you know, the raw footage of, of you giving, for example, your you know, piece to camera when you were doing your, li your Facebook Live broadcast at the actual site on the on the night of the you know the, the night before the rescue for example yeah. those were real you know in terms of in terms of my storytelling i use those as a kind of guide to 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 tell us where we are in the story and, and your character in the film also is a kind of a little bit like a almost like a greek chorus you know you kind of update us as to where we are because we can't show the whole story and i think it was important to have the press corps represented in the film because they were a big part of how we saw the story Elon Musk is in there, right? <laughs> Elon Musk is not in the film at the risk of uh, getting um, sued. <laughs> well, it's you just wanted to make some money doing this. I think the thing for me was, uh, you know, when people started asking me, like, you know, when they heard about this film being made, the first comment I get was like, "Who's playing Elon oh, Musk?" <laughs> I'm sure, and that kind of put me off because I felt like we don't want to just, you know, use Elon Musk as a as a right. reason to go see this film. I mean, yeah, sure, we want bums on seats, but there are other <laughs> ways to tell a story. Yeah, he than played just no part. Yeah. Sure. I'm just wondering, because, you know, with the fact that there's so many renditions of the story coming out, like Netflix is doing a series and documentaries and such, how do you feel as a filmmaker being one one of them to tell this story and kind of the first to tell a somewhat fictionalized, you know, nonfiction and fiction, but you're f kind of the first person sure. to get your story out. You know, it wasn't easy making this film. I mean, we made this film under a microscope. And, you know, whenever you go to a location, you say, oh, we're making a film about this, the, the, about the wild boars, about mm -hmm. the Mupa. You know, it's sort of like dollar signs sort of light up in their eyes and they think oh you're making a film about that oh you must have lots of money so it was it was a constant struggle trying to get sort of people on side to help us and and yet people were also worried about opportunities being taken away for example they said well if we do it with you then maybe we can't do it with someone else so mm. it's almost like 
you know, people didn't want to give us all their stories. They're like, oh, we're not sure, you know, mm. how much are you going to pay us for, for being in the film? You know, because we've got this other better offer. So we found a lot of kind of competition. And of course, what's happened now is that there's been this kind of confusion when we, when we released the, the teaser trailer. You know, lots of people who maybe weren't following the making of the film, they just saw the teaser last week and, oh, uh... This is the one being made by John Chu, or this is the one being made oh, by no. the people who that, made Crazy Rich uh, Asians. Yeah, right. So they've got it all mixed up, which is fine because I, I don't mind if people think we're like this very expensive film that got made. Super but duper, yeah. but I, I don't actually think that it's a problem when you go and see the film because I think that people enjoy right. my version of the film just as they will enjoy the right. Netflix series or the documentaries or the many other you know, the books and the novels are being written about this. There's, there's a lot of material that's going to come out about the Tom Luong story. Sure. And maybe not just, you know, right now, but in the years to come. So you're heading off to the festival circuit soon, I believe, right? You're actually premiering Korea? That's is right. We're actually, we've been selected for the Busan International Film Festival, which is, you know, one of, which is one of the, you know, the most prestigious in Asia. So we're very lucky to have that chance to, to premiere the film there. And then we'll be following that with and a premiere the, in Vancouver, actually. North, yeah. yeah, North American premiere there and a, and a European premiere in London. So we're at the London BF, the BFI London F Festival uh, the second weekend in October. And then audiences in Thailand will be able to see the film in November when it comes out in the cinemas here on the 28th. Okay, and they'll be the first general audiences really to get their teeth in this thing? Sure, yeah. We're going to give Thailand the chance to see it first, and then hopefully we'll get distribution around the world. Our guest Tom Waller's film, The Cave, a.k.a. Nang Non, will be released in Thailand on November 28th. Tom, thanks so much for coming by and talking with us. Thank you. No problem. And that's it for the Coconuts podcast today. You can find all these stories and more at coconuts.co. Better yet, become a Coco Plus member at coconuts.co slash membership for unlimited access to stories, swag, special offers, and more. The Coconuts podcast is recorded at Noise Studios in Bangkok. Special thanks to our audio engineer, Inigo Manthakon. The Coconuts podcast is written and produced by Todd Ruiz and Tara Kamolt-Navith. Our executive producer is Byron Perry. Hey, thanks for joining us. Tune in next week for more amazing stories from Southeast Asia and Hong Kong. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining.